Some time ago, I was up here and I told you about the beginning of my current journey with God and how he provided evidence of his calling in response to my search with a $50 bill and later $100. Today, because one of you out there is probably sitting on that evidence, you're a part of my journey. You see, the money was never really mine. It was meant for an encouragement for me to continue the path God opened to me. So it went into the building of this church. Now, I see that evidence every time I come. And now, because you are part of that encouragement, I want to share with you a new experience God brought my way in answer to questions I had on how I could see the sovereignty of God and his goal for me. You may remember that a few months ago, our church had what we called then a prayer initiative. It was six weeks of special prayer. One of those weeks, we focused on brokenheartedness. This story today is how God began to heal my broken heart and to see him after that brokenness. I hope you can find some healing in the revelation that was given to me, too. I'm not doing very good with this thing. There, well, no. Good idea. Sharon's technologically challenged at the best of times. That's why I got my whole family here. Oh, you're so good to me, Kendall. Thank you. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. Can you see greater things than these? There is a miracle in Mark 8 that has bewildered me for quite some time, and that's where God led me to find the healing that I so desperately needed. If we see Mark's gospel as a Jerusalem play, this chapter introduces Act 8. While you're turning there, let me tell you a little story. A vacationing American businessman standing on the pier of a quaint coastal village in southern Mexico watched as a small boat pulled into the harbor, or the pier. A young Mexican fisherman inside had just caught several large yellow fin tunas. The American asked, how long did it take you to catch such fine fish? Only a few hours, replied the Mexican fisherman. Well, why don't you stay out there longer and catch more fish? The American then asked. The Mexican warmly replied, With this, I have more than enough to take care of my family's needs. The businessman then became very serious. But what do you do with the rest of your time? Responding with a smile, the Mexican fisherman said, I sleep late, I play with my children, I watch ball games, and take a siesta with my wife. Sometimes in the evenings, I can take a stroll into town and see my friends, play the guitar, and sing a few songs. The American businessman impatiently interrupted, Look, I'm a graduate from Harvard. I can help you be more profitable. If you'll fish several hours longer every day, you can sell the extra fish you catch. You can buy a bigger boat. 
Soon you'll be able to buy many boats until you have a whole fleet of fishing boats. Then you'll be able to sell your fish directly to the processor or even open your own cannery. Eventually, you could control the product. You could move to Mexico City or possibly even Los Angeles or maybe New York and leave this tiny coastal village behind you. There, you could further advance your enterprise. Having never thought about such things, the Mexican fishermen said, but how long will all this take? Oh, probably only about 15 or 20 years, the Harvard graduate pronounced. Maybe less if you work really hard at it. Then what, senor? Why, that's the best part, answered the businessman with a laugh. When the time is right, you could sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions? Really? What would I do with it all? Answered the young fisherman in disbelief. The businessman then boasted, then you could happily retire. You could move to a quaint coastal fishing village where you could sleep late, play with your grandchildren, watch ball games, take a siesta with your wife. You could stroll into the village in the evenings where you could play your guitar and sing with your friends all you want. Mark leads up to his miracle found in the Act Two by describing the conditions of the Pharisees as blind, kind of like our Harvard graduate in that story. And then he leads into the blindness of the disciples. As we watch this scene unfold, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 8, let's take a moment to ask God's presence once more. Father in heaven, we're opening your word right now, and we really want to have your spirit guide and direct in our study. So we ask you to be here with us. In Jesus' name. When they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch and heal him. Jesus took the blind man aside and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around and said, Yes. Oh, I forgot that one. Sorry. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. This miracle is now shifting its focus of blindness to its healing. But why does it take place in stages? While the healing of the blind man in stages first applied to the disciples, it also highlights a more general truth. None of us see very clearly when we become Christians. Even though we have a new perspective on life, we are still partly seeing through the lens of our old ways. Clear vision comes about through Bible study, prayer, practicing Christian living, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and is often assisted by other Christians who have been there and done that. One of the genuine tragedies of life is that many Christians are satisfied with seeing people walking about as trees and don't allow Jesus' second touch. Being a Christian 
somehow seems to be enough. The good news is Jesus is very desirous to, to complete what he has begun. We just need to allow him that second touch. The next part of chapter 8 moves from the blindness from healing that blindness into the lives of his disciples. This is a most critical episode in Jesus' life, and he sees clearly that his life is progressing toward the cross. So he wonders, has he had any effect at all? Can anyone see who he really is? This triggers his question. Two questions, actually. Who do others say I am? But that's really a leading question, because the real purpose is in his second question. Who do you say that I am? Hooray, Peter. Good going, Peter. He confesses what the disciples do believe. You are the Christ, the Messiah. Well, at least Jesus hasn't totally failed. There are at least trees walking around in the blindness of his disciples. They see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but haven't got a clue what that means. So Jesus tells them to keep it quiet. If they spread it around with their misunderstanding, there would have been additional confusion. There's a second touch needed before that passing on. Now we go to act two in our story. As we integrate ourselves into this story, let's figure out what it is that Jesus' second touch means. What is it that we are to see? It's found in Mark 8:31 through Mark 10:52. Kind of a broad subject, but let's narrow in on what there is there and just kind of cover the surface so that you have a place to start when you go home. You can study this out in more depth because it's the teaching that Jesus is providing to his 2024 church. There has to be a very important lesson here for us because the next few verses we see that the tempter shows up. And he began to teach them that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected and to be killed and rise again. The partial blindness of the disciples needed a new focus The term suffering Messiah was not in their vocabulary, let alone one that would be killed. A sovereign God killed? No, that can't be. That gave the tempter an open door, and he was able to use one of them to tempt Jesus to throw in the towel and abandon his purpose. Here I'd like to remind you, many of you are on a 40-day journey of prayer, I can almost promise you the devil will show up. And it's your job to tell him where to go. Get thee behind me. It's not until toward the end of chapter 8 when Mark reveals that Jesus began to teach them. Why the wait? If this is such an important topic, why is he waiting all the way till the end of this chapter? As I see it, if Christ had allowed his death to come without a warning, it would have crushed their faith. Even with this threefold warning that they've got, it nearly did so. The Messiah was coming as a conqueror, 
not a sufferer, right? But now it's safe to start teaching them what it meant to have the Messiah here. After all, they had confessed their faith and belief that he was the Messiah, and now it's time to open their understanding to what that meant. Did you notice that Jesus also announced that it was necessary for him to be killed? If you were Peter or one of the other disciples, would that thought have sunk in or flown right over your head without comprehension? Most of us 2024 disciples see more than trees walking around on this topic. We've studied it for a while. However, because of the necessity for their understanding and for my enlightenment as well, he had to begin to teach them very plainly no matter how difficult that task proved to be. The first century Jews were not ready for a Messiah who did not at least deliver them from, national, from their, their nation politically. They were not ready for a Messiah who had come to save them from their sins rather than from the Roman conquerors. Now I have to ask myself, are his 21st century disciples any more aware of his purpose than they were 20 centuries ago? We know we have been saved in the sense that we have accepted Jesus. But we are easily lulled into a place of complacency that we are good just right where we are. The plain fact is he has a lot more saving to do from sin in me. This hit home really hard when many years ago I turned my back on the church because someone in it was not what my expectation told me they should be. I had to realize that the problem was in me. Jesus had a lot more saving from sin to do in me. And even though I might have attempted to put the blame on another, it was my own lack of trust in Christ that pushed me away. The encouraging thing is, Jesus has not given up. As Mark declares, he continues teaching. And in verse 34, he says, I'm not doing, oh. If anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoa, wait a minute. What? Deny? Where did this denying thing come from? I'm pretty good at denying myself. I'm self-controlled, usually. And thinking of others' needs most of the time. But what is meant by deny himself? Denial of self is not the same as self-denial. Rather, denying self is focusing on ourselves as not the end, but as a small part of the path on the way to the kingdom of God. It is subordinating the clamoring ego with its claim for priority and the obsession with I, me, and mine. It is not sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Denying self is not some sort of moral athletic training. 
but it is for Christ's sake. For the sake of putting myself into his cause and acceptance of my minor role in achieving his purposes. Denying myself puts me into his plan. What about this take up the cross thing? That had to have been a shock to his disciples. After all, the concept of crucifixion has lost its abhorrent connotations that would have been prominent in his first disciples' minds. They see this journey to Jerusalem like a procession of condemned criminals with halters around their necks, in handcuffs, and wearing orange suits. A one-way trip to death. Too many of us 21st century disciples view bearing our cross as wearing an ornament around our neck or carrying one around in our pocket. It has lost its horribleness and devastation that Jesus' companion saw. I think most of us probably see trees walking around on this subject because we understand that sin has a natural birth, but it does not die a natural death. In every case, it has to be sentenced and put to death, an act of the will under the impulse of the Holy Spirit referred to throughout the Bible as crucifixion. Even though we may see clearly that crucifixion and bearing our cross equals death to the life of sin, that seeing must include an experience of the ongoing process of total death to our formal life, former life and a new life in Jesus. It's not a change. It's a death to the old DNA and a rebirth in the new Christ-centered DNA. We see that Jesus has not been able to give his total second touch for healing, and Mark picks up this teaching of the suffering Messiah in chapter 9. From there, they passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know about it because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Then after three days, he will rise. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem, where he knew the cross was waiting. It's imperative that he direct his disciples to see what is coming. Jesus adds that he will be betrayed to the, the instructions that he had given before. I wonder if perhaps that was a way to attempt to waken up Judas, to wake up Judas to what was going on and to get some kind of a conviction for him to do a soul search. A true soul search is part of that second touch. And it's part of my plan as I do this journey with God the next 40 days. We find the disciples unable to grasp what Jesus is telling them. After all, how does resurrection make any sense if you do not understand the necessity of death? They aren't any different than most of us. We all shrink from, from bad news. We understand enough, but we shrink from the full truth. 
No one wants to face the reality of dying. But death must occur before resurrection is possible. The question then remains for me to answer, what needs to die in me before I can be resurrected to a new life, fit for a new earth? <clears throat> it's, evidence, it's evident that they do not want to confront this issue by the next few verses, because they point out that Jesus is leading and they are following, but at a great distance. They were discussing which of them should be the leader in this kingdom to be established. Sheesh, those guys were really off course. Before I sentence them to time out in the dunce chair in the corner, I have to ask myself, how much distance is there between me and my savior as I'm following him? The craving to stand out as superior, to have people see and admire us is part of the great rebellion of humanity against God. Competitiveness and self-interest have not lost their edge in the last 2,000 years. So Jesus must teach what it is to be a servant leader before he can give the second touch of healing. As Mark begins to wrap up his Act two, on why Jesus needed to heal this blindness in stages, he inserts a section that seems a little bit out of place when it's first read. It's on marriage and children. The reality is, if you study it, this section is not really on the legality of marriage or of divorce, but on cardiology. The hard-heartedness displayed in the Pharisees' question regarding divorce is contrasted with the simple faith and trust displayed by a child who has nothing to bring to the salvation table but problems. That's when we learn, I think I went one too far. That's when we learn that salvation is all about God's grace. It hints at what Jesus wants us to see. The road to eternal life includes difficult experiences and losses as the enmity displayed by the serpent's seed focuses in on God's seed. Can I trust God's grace despite the pain or perhaps through the pain? Then it is I'm reminded he walks with me having only my bestest outcome in his plan. First and foremost, God is a God of grace and mercy, love and justice. Situations don't alter that fact. Ellen White put it fairly clear. The fact that we are called upon to endure trial shows that the Lord Jesus sees in us something precious which he desires to develop. If he saw in us nothing whereby he might glorify his name, he would not spend time in refining us. He does not cast worthless stones into the furnace. That was from Ministry of Healing 471. So now Jesus is ready to move on to his third attempt to heal the blindness of his followers. In verse 33, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and will whip him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. We can be pretty sure that this last attempt to give insight to the trouble that was on the horizon was still floating somewhere out there in la-la land with his disciples. Because this is where Mark informs us that John and James ask for the position right next to Christ when he begins his kingdom. Little did they know or understand that those who were on either side of him when he began his kingdom were also hung between heaven and earth with him. Do you think they would have wanted that position had they known or understood what being next to him and as he started his kingdom involved? But we really need to get to the point of, act, of this act too. Because you see, in Jewish storytelling, the central point is in the middle of the act. In other words, chapter 9, 2 to 13, verses 2 to 13. You refer to it and understand it as the transfiguration. And I'm sure you've heard a dozen story, sermons on it. As we see this act two, it describes the reason Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that trouble was coming. The purpose of the second touch. And more per pointedly, I start to see a little bit of the purpose of that brokenheartedness I had that I could not abandon. He is giving opportunity to see and correct defects in me that will fit me for his service. Jesus has gone up the mountain to pray. He is struggling with facing the cross, but added to that struggle was his blind followers operating on a very low spiritual level. I'm certain that Jesus felt the need to pray for his disciples above and beyond his own need for strength to face the upcoming events. Thus, part of this second touch to see is also seeing others' needs as more necessary than my own. I notice a glorious answer here, too. In that desire of seeing others' needs, he receives an answer to both needs. <laughs> Hard to understand that a concern for others that is above and beyond my, no my own need allows God to provide a glorious healing. One of the reasons that we see Moses and Elijah in this scene is the common Jewish belief that Elijah must appear before the Messiah would come. The appearance of Elijah had a huge impact on the disciples. More than that, the purpose of this transfiguration was to encourage both Jesus and the disciples who were in a tailspin of bewilderment due to the, Jesus' recent teaching on Messiahship and what it looked like and what discipleship was like. To be with Elijah and Moses who also experienced stress and rejection on earth as God's servant was reassuring to him and to the disciples. Also, my eyes open a little more when I see they did not speak of Jesus' upcoming death, but rather of his departure. They pointed him beyond the cross, 
beyond the burial in the tomb, even beyond the resurrection, all the way to the place where he would return to his father. The emphasis was not on what Jesus was to suffer, but on what he was to achieve. And to be clear, the result of the victory that he was to achieve that meant the most to Jesus is the opportunity he would have to be with you and me. Not only did Jesus receive the encouragement of his fellow humans, Moses and Elijah, God himself speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, go ahead, you made the right choice, I will be with you. That gives not only reassurance to Jesus as he is about to face the trouble ahead, but also to the disciples, even though they still see trees walking around. This declaration by God would later stabilize them through troubled times. And I hope it stabilizes you as you hear God say, go ahead, you made the right choice. Follow my son, I will be with you. In their confusion and not knowing how to approach all this, they asked Jesus why the leaders of the Jews claimed that Elijah would return before the establishment of the messianic kingdom. Jesus' response was part of that second touch of healing too. Elijah had already come, and they did to him whatever they desired. Ouch. This sent a shockwave through them that was almost as deep as the concept of a suffering Messiah. The idea that Elijah would suffer was just plain crazy. Slowly it dawns on them and me if the forerunner, John the Baptist, had been treated shamefully and killed, could the Messiah face a different fate? Could those that follow the same path face a different fate as they travel in this sin-absorbed, broken world? I wonder, your sovereign God could deliver, um, yeah, God could deliver us out of it all, today or tomorrow. However, he allows this experience to continue as long as it takes to develop the character of Christ in your life. An understanding of that is not easily comprehended at first or understood. There's a second touch kneeling needed. So how did the Holy Spirit get my attention to see that I needed Jesus' second touch? Did I realize the need of his second touch? Am I still walking around like a tree? Act two has something to say to me. I accepted Jesus long ago, and I daily ask for the Spirit to guide me and to live in me. So why do I still face the pain of arthritis or disease? Why am I rejected, even betrayed by those closest to me? Why am I so often unfriended? Why do I fail so miserably when I attempt to serve the Lord? Why do some of my friends and family suffer so much before death comes? Did not Jesus heal leprosy? Did he not promise to be with me in all that I do for him? He raised the dead 
and did so much healing. So why not for me? Why do I screw up? Why do I ache? Why do I suffer so much? If God is leading, why does trouble find me so quickly? Why, why, why? They could continue. The wise could continue. I so desperately need Jesus' touch, second touch, because I'm stuck in seeing trees walking around, asking why, when I should see God's great love for me as the reason I live and the reason I am broken and bashed by the enemy. That's the focal point of Act 2, the transfiguration's mini-representation of heaven. Instead of focusing on the world and the troubles it brings me, it's not my home anyway. My attention is redirected to my departure. How much time have you spent lately imagining your departure to a new home? Let me tell you, all you all might be wearing white flowing robes and playing harps. Not me. No, sir. My robe is going to be sky blue pink with a candy apple green border. I will be the one in Zion without a harp. I don't know how to play it anyway. I'm going to have a gold shovel, and I'm going to dig in the regenerated earth to figure out how to grow apricots and berries, hazelnuts and almonds that astonish my imagination. And my room will be in a fruit grove, tree, fruit grove somewhere with bushes of blueberries and raspberries in each corner and strawberries climbing the walls. I'm going to make my bed out of daisies and daffodils and sweet woven grasses. Wait a minute. Do I even need a bed? I think I need a new set of construction plans, Kendall. I need to train one of those trees with a low-growing branch that will provide a place to sit, and you all can come join me. We'll eat the berries on my, tr on my walls and the trees, nuts growing on the sides. Want to come? After that, I'm going to roll down the hill, covered with soft grass, to the river of life, flowing in the valley, and maybe I'll just float upstream to the tree of life, where I expect Jesus is playing Ring Around the Rosie with some of my other friends. Or maybe we can play leapfrog, or tag, or some other laugh-inspiring game. What you think? You think your video games are challenging and fun? Wait till you see God's video game. I bet you can literally travel to the planet Gromanon and covered with snow and ski, probably barefoot, down the soft, clean snow and skyrocket off the cliff down to the next level. Maybe you'd rather play the video game in the planet Sycamorous and glide in the water until you're able to locate that great white shark that'll carry you past corals and caves with colors that you can't even imagine or, or even comprehend at this point in your life. Maybe you'd prefer to play on the planet with the mountain and run up the side path with a bunch of lions. Maybe I will even eat berries with a grizzly. Whatever your picture of your new home and surroundings, never forget, this world is not your home. You're set for departure. 
on your way to a new world created just for you and me. Then God will bring his home where I am. His plan is to dwell with us in a world that does not have COVID, sciatic pain, no more back aches and blood pressure high, or cardiac irregularities, no more cancer. It doesn't have depression, abuse, or anxiety, or betrayal, theft and murder, or lies, not there. How does John describe this place? And there shall be no more sin, no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The end of Act 2 reveals Jesus' healing of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was crying out for healing and for the son of David to have mercy. He was told to be quiet, but he cried out louder. Have you decided to cry out louder for that second touch of grace and mercy? When Jesus called him, he threw away his garment and came. No more need for that old thing. Throw it away. He was on his way to see Jesus and receive a new garment of righteousness fitted for his new domicile. The ultimate goal of Act 2 is that Jesus' second touch allows us to see beyond the individual cross we bear, to see beyond the troubles that face us daily, to see beyond the sickness that is part of this troubled world, to see beyond the persecutions that the enemy is determined to inflict. As we are ready to throw away that old garment and travel the path that will end in our departure to a new home waiting for us because Jesus has achieved the victory and freely gives it to us. God in his sovereignty has opened the way. Are you ready and anxious to see? To see his face and have his character implanted in your mind. For we shall see him as he is.